Well, let me begin by saying uh, it's been good for me to be here the last uh, five or so weeks sharing with you from Ephesians. Uh, it's a shame we didn't have 15 weeks. Ephesians is a great book and we could have shaken it for a lot more uh, than we have, but hopefully this has been a helpful time to you as it has been to me as I've looked through this really important work. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we close this book. Father, I just pray that as we look into your word that you might meet with us. Lord, that, we, uh, that you might touch us in such a way that we leave this place not just knowing more information about you, but going from this place with a great desire to really know you and to love you and to serve you. And so I pray that you meet with us now for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's an Olympic sport that a few years ago was in danger of being dropped. Uh, it's been part of the modern Olympics since the modern Olympics started, and it boasts the longest actual foot race of any particular sport in the Olympics. It is what? Does anybody know? Race walking. That's right. It was a sport that was considered being dropped. Race walking. About eight kilometres longer than the marathon, and it requires quite a different sort of strategy. In fact, as I, I see people walking the streets of Glebe, and you see these people out, and they're, they're moving their arms up and down with no a particular embarrassment. Um, they're the ideal people to go into race walking. I've always thought of race walking a little bit of a strange sport in that if you wanted to go quick, you would run. Okay, but let's, you know, for me, race walking is the idea that, no, don't run, walk, but really fast. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but it's an Olympic sport. And as I, I got onto the web and I thought I'd learn a little bit about walking and about race walking, so I went to walkabout.com and it gave me all this fascinating information about race walking. And it's got a picture up here of some race walkers. And for some unknown reason, the middle picture up the top there, people wanted their heads blacked out. Uh, perhaps their mothers wanted them to be javelin throwers or shot putters. And they were embarrassed, but uh, I'm not sure what the case is. But as I did look, there were certain explanations of how you can walk appropriately. So you'll notice the hand movements, the gestures... Uh, and all these different arrows, and again, if you're interested in this, walkabout.com, go there and go to your heart's content. But I discovered that there are certain rules, if you're going to walk successfully and you're going to walk in the Olympic Games, that's uh, probably too late for the Beijing Games, but if you want to, in the future, get ready for the race walking event, there are a few rules you need to know if you're going to be successful at race walking. First is this, head level. You need to walk with your head at an appropriate level and your eyes straight in front. Well done, straight to the top of the class. Okay, you've got your head up, it's level, and you're looking straight ahead. The next thing is you need to put your arms at 85 to 90 degrees and drive back. I'm not quite sure what that means, but uh, evidently somebody up there must be doing it. You next need to advance your legs straight. Okay, and you, and you put your legs straight and you just sort of walk. But the most important thing, if you are to walk successfully, you need a crisp heel plant and a good rear foot roll off the end of your toes. Again, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I do love walking. Now, the most famous walker in this room is, our pitch, is this guy up on the top left-hand side. Who is he? That's right, he is the household name in Mexico, <laughs> Bernardo Segura. Of course, obviously, a few, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Fernando Segura. He was a, a household name apparently in Mexico and he was quite the athlete. And in the Sydney Olympic Games, he was quite the walker. And he was in the 20-kilometer event and the 50-kilometer event. And as it goes, he was walking along in the 20-kilometer event and as he was coming into the stadium, 10 meters behind two opponents in front of him. He didn't want to be left wondering, so he put the accelerator down, if you can picture that in walking. Uh, and he walked a little bit faster and he overtook these two opponents from Poland and some other place and he made his way to the finish line, walking at a good pace with his hands in the air. Now, there's one problem. Just before he entered the stadium, a judge was watching Segura and made the judgment that you can't, well, there is a rule in walking, you can't have your both feet off the ground more than 30 one hundredth of a second or you're actually running. And evidently, Segura, in his desire to finish the race, took what might be perceived as sort of a shortcut. And he gave a little bit of a job. Okay, and they said, that is unexpected. Oh, I've lost my microphone. Getting too enthusiastic, Malcolm, settle down. But he got so excited, or rather, the, the crowd were in an uproar, and in Mexico, there was such upsetness that this household name, Bernardo Segura, there was so much upset. Uh, upsetness, if that's a word in this country, that the Australian embassy in Mexico, listen to this, the Australian embassy in Mexico City was moved to issue a denial of a conspiracy against Mexican athletes at the Sydney Olympics. Poor old Segura lost his way just when it counted, when it needed to count. He broke into a run and he didn't obey the rules and as a result he was disqualified. He knew the rules of walking. He knew what was effective in walking. He'd been walking for quite a while. But when it really counted, Segura didn't come through with the goods. In fact, Segura walked in such a way that he was disqualified from finishing the race. This is a question that Paul has been raising for us uh, in regards to a metaphor of walking throughout the book of Ephesians. As we've discussed and made our way through the book of Ephesians, Paul has given us good information in chapters 1, 2 and 3 about how we should walk in the sense of uh, how we should perceive ourselves, the rules that we should understand and the conceptions that we should have in our minds. He says now in chapters 4, 5 and 6, as a result of this good truth, this is how you are to walk well. Or as the NIV translates it, this is how you are to live. And what we're going to do today, we're going to look at three more statements where Paul is going to encourage the Ephesians on how to walk. And as we think about these three statements that will appear for us in chapter 5, he's going to inform us, just as in chapters 1, 2 and 3, you were to think correctly, now in chapters 4, 5 and 6, you are to live correctly. Just as theology was expressed in chapters 1, 2 and 3, now in chapters 4, 5 and 6, theology is explained. Just as God's purpose was spelled out in the first three chapters, now in chapters 4, 5 and 6, God's purpose is lived out by you and I, the church. And so we're going to walk through this passage, and I'll give you the three statements right up front. The NIV will actually... 
uh, hide it a little bit because they do a good job of a translation. The job of any translation of the Bible is to interpret certain words and ideas and they do that. But they take this metaphor that is used walk and they translate it live. But I want to identify these three, the three times in this passage this term walk is used. First of all, chapter 5, verse 2. You'll get the first uh, demonstration of this or the first reference to this idea and he says you are to walk in love that is going to be our first movement in the passage then a little bit later in verse 8 he's going to say you also need to walk as children of the light and we'll explore what that means and then finally in chapter 5 verse 15 he will say you need to walk as one who is wise not as being unwise and he'll give us reasons for that and also a means of how we are to do that. So let's walk through and look at these three things very quickly. The first thing he says is that we're to walk in love by imitating God. Verse 5 begins, and really this carries over from his previous discussion in, verse, in chapter 4. And here he begins verse 1, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The first point is very simple, and we've talked to quite a lot about it in Ephesians, and that is God loved us. When did he love us? He loved us even when we didn't deserve it. If you want to be an imitator of God, you've got to learn the truth of imitating God and, and identify areas in your own life where you can mimic his likeness. Uh, In fact, the very term imitate here, the Greek term that's used, is where we get the English word mimic from. And the picture here is of imitating God. And as we found out in chapter 2, God loved us when we were dead in sin, when we were dead in trespasses, when we had absolutely zero to offer. At that time, God loves us. The book of Romans puts it this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to imitate God's love? Go out and love somebody unconditionally, whether they deserve it or not. It's easy to come to EU and to meet friends who agree with you and to talk like you and think like you and, and love them. The real challenge is finding the non-EU or the person who doesn't have your worldview or doesn't think the same uh, thoughts that you do and to reach out in genuineness and really love and embrace them for Christ. That is going to be one of the challenges here. But particularly here, he's talking in the context of the Christian community, which we call the church. And he says, we are to love one another. And again, this is a distinguishing characteristic of Christianity. But then there's also in this, particularly in verse 2 here, the concept that God loved us sacrificially. God doesn't just say, you know, I love you and leave it at that. No, the Bible says he demonstrates his love towards us in while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates it. Again, the verb that's used uh, in the famous verse, John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave. There's a verbal aspect there where he, he actually demonstrates his love. He doesn't just love us, but he actually does something. He gives his son. That is the sort of love that Paul is exhorting us to hear. Christ loved us, it says in this passage, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first point, I think, is quite basic, uh, yet it's, uh, it's quite challenging. We need to be a people marked by sincere and genuine love. 
The second exhortation we find in verse 8, and it really encompasses verses 3 to 14, where he says, live as children of light. And here, this is really, if you can, uh, if you had a, a Bible that you like to mark on, chapter 5, verse 8, I really think provides a summary of the book of Ephesians. You were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so live as children of light. That is the whole point of this book. You were once this, you're no longer that, you're a people of light, therefore live out, as we said last week, your high calling. Live out God's purpose for your life. Now in this section, there are actually going to be a couple of uh, contrasts. He's going to, for example, say there are things that are light, which are positive, there are things that are dark. He will say that there are things that are deceptive and then there are things that are true. He's going to talk about there are things sometimes that produce fruit and sometimes there's a lack of fruit. There are some things that are hidden. There are other things that are revealed. But he opens up uh, particularly verses 3 to 14 and the first thing he exhorts us in this section is that we are to walk in holiness (coughs) pardon me by putting off improper behaviour. He's going to say there are certain actions that are inappropriate for the Christian. He says, do you want to walk in such a way that is worthy of your high calling? Then walk as children of light. Live as people who live righteously. Put off improper behaviour. Now he's going to spell out what some of this uh, improper behaviour is as he goes down through these next few verses. Listen to some of these things though. He says, first of all, verse 3, there must not be even a hint, even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Now, as we know, if we've been here for a little while, we've gone through the book of Exodus uh, with Rowan and we're going through the book of Exodus, you'll know that in the Old Testament, The people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, were given a law that that was graciously given from God to reflect who he was, but this law was to provide a stepping stone to the nations so that they might see in Israel a people who were different. In fact, if you were to go to ancient Israel, even if you go to modern Israel, I've studied in Israel, and over there you will notice that you'll see little boys with very short hair, and I'll have these, these uh, hair growing down the side of their face in these, these little locks. And it looks pretty unusual. If you see it and you're not familiar with that, you think, man, that's a little, a little unusual. And then you'll, you'll see them and they have certain things that they do. They love to carry, a, uh, if they're orthodox, they'll carry a prayer shawl and they'll go down to the western wall and they'll lift up this sheet over their head that has 613 strands hanging from it, representing the 613 commandments of Moses. And then they'll, they'll stand in front of the wall and they'll pray. You'll greet them on a Friday afternoon and you'll say Shabbat Shalom as the sun sets, peace on the Sabbath, and for a whole day virtually, they won't work. Now, why did God give these commandments to the, this people in ancient times, which is some, some people still practice? Why did he do that? Was it that people would say, oh, they're, a, they're an unusual lot of people? Was it so that people would say, I wonder why that little boy has his hair cut like that? No, the purpose was more than that. There were some things that were to mark Israel as distinct, not so that they would be distinct just for the sake of curiosity, but more than that, their distinction 
would have a component to it that would raise the curiosity and interest of other people that they would look at the lives of the Israelites and say, why are they different? Tell me about their law. Tell me about the God behind their law. And it was to be a stepping stone, not to be separate. This is the mistake of Israel, as we discovered in chapter 2. They use God's law and they use their, their separateness, not as a means of being distinct with the noble purpose of bringing in the nations to meet their God, but they ended up using being separate to keep people at an arm's length. Here the idea carries over where it says that we are to be a holy people at the end of verse 3. When he calls us, now at church, the holy people, he's using Old Testament language, but now through the revelation of Jesus Christ, we've discovered there's a new body made up of Jews and Gentiles, and he will say, you are a holy people. You are a distinct people. The term holy in the Old Testament, the Hebrew term kadosh, and in the New Testament is term hagios or hagiatso, has the idea of being distinct, being separate, being removed. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was the Sabbath day. He said, you will make the Sabbath day, or God makes the Sabbath day, and he, it says that he makes it holy. That is, it is set apart. There is something distinct about that day. In the, in the New Testament, when he talks about holy, the same idea that you are set aside for distinct and separate purposes. Now again, the, the idea is you're being used for a different purpose and you're separated uh, not just to be separate and to say, okay, I don't belong in this world, but you're separated for a purpose and the purpose is that you might be holy and distinct and you might live a life that is attractive to others and points them to God. And he says there are certain things that if you're going to be that distinct people, as the church, you need to put off. They're fairly obvious here. Look at them. Sexual immorality. The term used here is the term pornea, where we get the word pornography or pornographic. And this is sort of an all-encompassing Greek word that relates to all sorts of sexual sins. And this word is followed by this term impurity, which also is connected to uh, sexual sins. And the concept is very clear. There's not even to be a hint. If you want to be distinct as God's people, there's not even to be a hint of inappropriateness. Friends, let me ask you, do you joke like everyone else? Do you laugh at the jokes of this world when they pertain to sexual innuendo? Do you watch rubbish on TV that you know you shouldn't, but you, you just think, well, it's a popular show, the world's watching it, and I, don't, I want to mix it up with mainstream culture, and I want to know... And we use all sorts of terms to justify it. And yet there's sexual immorality. There's innuendo. He says that is improper for the people of God. You are distinct. Friends, I think it's time some of us pulled our head in and said, no, 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 I'm not going to watch that movie because I know it's going to condone sexual immorality. Again, we're not doing this because God says, oh, I want you to, to be weird and to be be kind of funky and have people look at you thinking, oh, they're, they're nuts. Okay, that's not the idea. The idea is we live a different standard. We say, no, sex is great. In fact, sex is one of the great gifts that God has given humanity. In fact, what you're watching on TV lowers and cheapens such a good thing. We need to be there to provide. There is a distinctness about our God and the way we view life and the way he views life. He says sexual inappropriateness, sexual immorality, that's not part of God's people. 
Let there not even be a hint of that among you and among me. He goes on a little bit further in greed. And it's interesting, he says in these first two verses actually, Christ loved us and he loves us sacrificially. His focus in demonstrating love is outward and other people focused. The problem with sexual immorality, impurity and greed, these are all things that focus on me, my pleasure, my gratification. And that is the difference here. And he says, this is improper behaviour, put it off. And then there's a second thing. He gives us the positive in verse 8 and 9. He says, for you were once darkness, okay, you were once there and that was once appropriate, or not appropriate, but that was once how you behaved. Now that you're part of God's people, you're no longer like that. You are light in the Lord. And he says, live as children of the light. And then he gives us what the fruit is or what are the consequences of being in the light. He says, goodness, righteousness, truth. Okay, these are all evidences that you are walking righteously and you are walking in the Lord. Now, as you walk in the Lord and as you walk in holiness and lightness, the idea, the two things happen. (coughs) Pardon me. The first is this, that unrighteous deeds are shown for what they are. When you walk in the light, your life is going to shine and so reveal that in other people's lives there is darkness. Now again, he's not saying here that you need to go around and you need to live in such a way that you're to to rubbish people and make them feel bad. The goal here is not uh, sort of a human guilt that you're going around imposing. No, the concept here is that when you walk in light, the natural um, giving off of righteousness and demonstrating what God's will is, will inevitably demonstrate what is unrighteous. So when you stand up and and there's a purity about your life and there's an integrity about your life, that is going to make some people feel very uneasy about being next to you or with you because they are going to feel an element of guilt and shame because of their deeds. Now, it's like a few years ago when I lived in uh, the state of Texas overseas. Uh, Texas is very hot and it's kind of a miserable place to live and uh, it was a good place where I was studying, but I could have picked a whole lot, uh, a lot of places nicer than Texas. But Texas in the middle of summer is quite unbearable. And one of the big problems in Texas is cockroaches. Okay, yeah, that's right, MG. Cockroaches are no good. Okay, and I remember being there, and uh, I was, uh, me and a couple of bachelor mates of mine at the time, we, we got a cheap place. There was some nice places near, near the college that I was studying at, but just a little bit further away in the dodgy part of town, there was an apartment building that had the front door had fallen off and uh, you know some other dodgy things about it. But the rent was cheap, which for us was the right price. And so I got there with a couple of my mates and I remember we went there, we rented uh, this place. And in fact, one month, the, ladies, the landlord, uh, or I probably should call her the slumlord, uh, she, she came and visited us and she looked at our couch and, and said one month, that's a really nice couch. If you guys are leaving in a month or two, why don't you give me that instead of your last month's rent? And we're like, fine. <laughs> and that's, uh, so it was kind of a dodgy place. And uh, I remember one night cooking myself some dinner. I was single at the time and I cooked up my, one of my best dishes, baked beans on toast. And I remember putting the baked beans on there. I, I scoffed some down and I, I nicked off the class as quick as I could. I had an evening class. I remember getting back 
And I was so had it, I went straight to bed. Now, in the middle of the night, it was a hot Texan night, I decided to get up and to get myself out of my abode and go and get myself a nice frosty beverage. So I got up and it was dark and I went to the fridge and I flicked on the light switch and the ugliest sight I'd ever seen. The annual gathering of Texas cockroaches were meeting in my house around my baked beans. And it was very disturbing. And I didn't remain in that place very long after that. I thought, it's worth paying a bit more rent. Okay? But when you flick the light switch on, there's something that cockroaches don't enjoy. That is light. And they also don't like humans. And all of a sudden, these cockroaches went to the four winds of the earth. Okay? They scattered. They went under the fridge. They went into the cover. They went into any nook and cranny, cranny that they could find. But what was disturbing was that the light busted them. It demonstrated, you should not be here. Cockroaches live outside. Now, people aren't cockroaches. But when you live in a way that is holy, a way that shows integrity, a way that is according to God's standard, inevitably, some people are not going to want to be around you because your desire to please God is going to reflect on them and they are going to see and feel guilt and shame because they don't have a good relationship with God. That is a natural consequence of walking right with God. Now again, don't confuse this with, okay, you're an annoying, you might be an annoying person and people don't want to be around you. Okay, not to be confused with that. Here he says, if you walk in a manner that is righteous, there are certain things that will be revealed. But there's a second thing you'll notice in this passage. And that is, the goal of this light shining is that people will awaken to God's grace. Look at what it says in verse 14. Here he quotes a scripture and he says, that is why it says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The reason that that we live this way is not just Uh, and it's not even with the purpose that it's going to reflect on other people's lives and make them feel bad. The goal is that through our lives, Christ will shine on them and they will be awakened from this spiritual deadness by trusting in God and his kindness. So he exhorts us here to walk in holiness by living according to his measures. And then finally, and I want to make sure we we cover this, this final part, He gives us this final exhortation, which I think provides a good summary and a good uh, leaving challenge for us in the book. And that is we are to walk in wisdom by obeying the Holy Spirit. We're to walk in wisdom by obeying the Holy Spirit. He gives us an exhortation after telling us to walk in a manner that is wise. He explains how you do that. In verse 18, he has this famous verse and says that we are to be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Uh, If you go to different churches, there are different ways people think that you are filled with the Spirit. But one of the erroneous ways, I think, is to picture this word, be filled with the Spirit, as if it's an issue of content. That is, we're, we're like a petrol tank and we're only half full, and so we say, God, Holy Spirit, fill me up to the top. Okay, the idea that, you know, we just need more of God in our experience or I just need a bit more of God in my life. 
No, the Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 13 that we're sealed by the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us. We're not asking here for a bit more of God. We're not asking for refill the tank, as it were, as much as it's the issue of control. When it says here, be filled with the Spirit, there are three possible translations in Greek. It could do with the Spirit. It could say, be filled in the Spirit. Or it could be translated, be filled by the Spirit. And it's this final measure that I think is the picture here. By means of the Spirit. It's what they call a dative of means. I think it's a, the idea here is that you're filled by the Holy Spirit's power. Well, that still doesn't make it clear what's actually going on. I think the key for us in interpreting this key idea of being filled with the Spirit, or better, by the Spirit, is found in the metaphor. Don't be drunk with wine. I don't know if you've been around too many drunk people, but people who drink, and drink heavily and drink and get drunk, start behaving very erratically. I remember a few years ago uh, being around my uncle, and I told him I was off to America, and he knew I was going to uh, theological school, and my uncle is not a Christian person and I remember he'd been on the drink that day and, and he got down on, his, on the ground on his knees and started kissing my shoes. And I said, what are you doing? And he says, oh, you holy man, bless me, bless me. And, and I'm thinking, uncle, uncle, you've, you've just had too much to drink. Get up on your feet, man. But my uncle Jim, he was so controlled that he started to act erratically. Now, we've been around people like this before. I remember getting on a train a few years ago and it was a packed train Friday afternoon. Gentleman had got, got on the, the train, he'd been to the watering hole too long and he got up there with a bunch of people everywhere and he looked at another man and he said, did you ever know that you're my hero? <laughs> and, and he broke forth in the song. Now this average battler Okay, move from, you know, being a university professor or a truck driver or whatever his occupation was to all of a sudden thinking that he was Pavarotti. Now, how did he make that transition? Because he was so controlled by alcohol that it shifted his mind that he actually started to do things which he ordinarily couldn't do. Paul, he will make a contrast. and He'll say that, that behavior is inappropriate, but by comparison... Just as a drunk person is controlled by alcohol, you are to be filled by the Spirit. He is to control and dominate your life. You are to live in submission to Him so that His agenda becomes your agenda. And as you submit yourself in obedience to God the Holy Spirit, He will shape your desires, He will shape the way you think, He will shape the way you speak, and He will shape the way you act. You know, I think also, while I'm here, I think it's, there are certain commands. There are 43 imperatives in a book, 42 from chapter 4 onwards, these commands that are given to us. And there's some of them that are fairly clear. And while we're here, I just want to say to you, you're at university, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be drunk, you can put it here, with beer. Don't be drunk with vodka. Listen, being drunk is improper for God's people. Now, I enjoy a glass of red wine with a meal and a problem again, like sex. The problem is not with the gift of sex or the gift of alcohol, it's the abuse. But some things in the Bible are black and some things are white. And I think here's an esta- a statement, a prohibition. Don't get drunk with wine. 
Okay, I'll say it again, just in case we don't get it. I know you're at university. I know the challenge is out there. Listen, don't get drunk with wine. It's improper for God's people. It's not for us. And the challenge here is that in contrast to that, you need to be filled by the Spirit, controlled by His desires. And what will be the result of that? He gives it to us in verses 19 and 21. In fact, He's going to give us five participles here that describe the results of what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. Let me give them to you. Five different things. First of all, you speak to each other with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Okay, that's how we speak to each other, with, with words of encouragement. These words here, he talks about psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There are certain things that are helpful for us. He says, there's a second possible, we sing. It's appropriate here, talking in the context of God's people, as he is in this book, to say that singing has a very real part in the Christian experience. And you'll notice even in this passage, the singing and making music in your heart is to the Lord. But there's an encouraging component to it. It's a corporate thing, but also the singing has an upward focus as well as we sing to the Lord. Thirdly, make music. Again, I'm one of those guys who just makes a joyful noise. Mine mine wouldn't be declared as music necessarily, but it's appropriate when the, the body of Christ gets together that we make music to the Lord. Fourthly, giving thanks. And there's a bit of a play on words here, but he, he'll use this term Eucharista, which means uh, thanksgiving, full of thanksgiving. And again, the idea is that when you get together with God's people, you should be a thankful people. We should be offering uh, regularly thanks to others. And then finally, submitting to one another. Look at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And submitting is not a bad word here. We often think of submission as kind of like, oh, you're, you're putting somebody under the thumb. Nothing could be further from the truth. The idea here, he says, as a Christian community, we need to be submitting to one another. In the following passage, he'll say, this is how it works out with husbands and wives. Chapter 6, he'll say, this is how it works out with slaves and masters. This is how it works out with children and parents. And he says, all of these things are the result of you walking with the Spirit. I don't want to end up like Bernardo Segura, being disqualified for walking poorly. And I don't want you to live that way either. So as we come to the end of the book of Ephesians, this final thought that actually comes from Ephesians I think is worth considering. What is the purpose of Ephesians? Why did Paul write it? In essence, he's writing to explain to each of us that if we are part of the community of God, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are people who have been called out of darkness and we have become children of light. If that's truly the case, he will say to us as a result of this whole book, Walk as children of light. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you might look at me and, and probably, probably so and say, you guys are a bit distinct. You guys are a little unusual. Yes, we are. Not for the sake of, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to be distinct because of the way we uh, perhaps dress or, or the way we, we, we sing or the way we do things. We're distinct Because we believe that in God's word, the Holy Bible, he has told us and given us a way, a plan to live by. And that plan, just as Segura needs to know how to walk with his arms at the right length and his feet on the ground at the right time, we believe that God, through his word, the Bible, wants to speak to us and teach us on how to live. If you don't know about this new life that's found in God, I'd encourage you, speak with the person who brought you, speak with myself, 
but learn out how to enjoy life as you walk with God. Let me pray for us and ask that God would bless this word and challenge us with the word from Ephesians. Just thank you for this time. I thank you for your book, uh, this letter to the Ephesians, and I pray that you would seal the truth on our heart. Lord, our desire is not to be smarter sinners, but changed people, people who are distinct. Distinct not because we're trying to be weird, but distinct because we want people to see what kind of a God you are and how great life is under you. And so I pray that you seal these words on our heart for Jesus' sake. Amen.